and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. Registered dietitians and nutritionists are uniquely qualified to participate in policy and inform evidence-based policy decisions related to nutrition, dietary guidelines and public health initiatives. The British Dietetic Association advocates for the role of dietitians in policy development and highlights their contributions to improving public health. But are there enough dietitians and nutrition experts working in policy in the UK? To help us answer these questions and dig deeper into this debate, we are delighted to be joined by registered dietitian, Dr. Carrie Ruxton. Welcome, Carrie. It's great to have you with us and thank you for joining me. But before we get started, I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself. Thanks, Karen. It's great to be joining you today. So about me, I've got a BSc in dietetics from Queen Margaret College. And then I went on and did a PhD looking at children's diets. Uh, after a stint in industry, where I actually worked with the sugar industry for five years managing their research programme, I then had a series of one-year jobs, either as a, a registered dietitian or working um, as, a, as a lecturer, before I decided I was better off being freelance. And I love my freelance job. I've been doing it for 20 years now. I work with all sizes of, of companies, also trade bodies, and my focus is on um, communications, um, content creation, strategy, research management and training. And I also have a couple of board positions. I used to be on the board of Food Standards Scotland and more recently I joined the board of Quality Meat Scotland. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest on our podcast. So something we like to do when we first start the podcast is uh, getting to know our guests a little bit better. So we've got some quick fire questions for you. So the first question is, what is something you are looking forward to in 2024? This is one of my New Year's resolutions. And what I've decided to do is to run something called the Larrick Grew Race. And it's a race of 27 miles. And you run from the police station in Braemar, up in the north of Scotland, right over this beautiful, bleak, but gorgeous pass in the mountains right through this uh, lovely Scots pine forest and you end up at the police station in Aviemore. It's a very old traditional race. It's been around for a long time and I lasted it in 2019. So since we've had COVID and I feel that my fitness suffered during then and I also had an operation last year which set me back, I've decided that my big goal for this year is I'm going to run that race. Well, congrats to you. I mean, it sounds like fitness is something that's that's really important to you, and I really commend that. It's so great to hear you challenging yourself with something like that. It sounds like a great route too. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it is absolutely gorgeous. And because I, I'm not looking to win it, I often take my mobile phone with me and take a few photos along the way because it yeah. really is such a special place. Oh, good for you. Well, looking forward to seeing how you get on. All the best for your training. The second question is, what does your dream holiday look like? Well, again, this fitness involved because I'm not one of these people that can just sit about on a sun lounger. Um, I'm lucky enough that I've had my dream holiday. So a few years ago, my husband and I decided to walk the Tour de Mont Blanc. And we did it in, in the kind of slightly lazy way of having our bags carried from place to place. So we only were walking with a very light backpack. And you walk up into the, the Alps and you, you go through 
France, Switzerland, Italy, um, and you you eat you eat in these lovely um, little kind of hilltop cafes, um, and of course you're absolutely starving because you've been walking all day. So it's it's lots of eating, lots of walking, lots of changes of views, and then when you get down to your hotel, you've got your bags waiting for you, and you can sit down and enjoy a nice glass of wine. So that's my ideal holiday, and I would love to do it again. I just need to persuade my fourteen year old daughter <laughs> to come with us this time. And uh, she's still yet to be persuaded. Oh, well, that sounds absolutely perfect to me. It sounds like such an amazing experience. I feel like I'm going to look that up after this episode. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the podcast questions now. So let's start with the basics. Often when we think of policy, government policy is front of mind. Are there other areas of policy which influence public health? Yes, I would say NHS policy and also the policy of healthcare professional groups. So if you think about the British Dietetic Association, that has got policies, nurses have got policies, doctors have got policies and their their specific organisations. So, but the thing is that they're interrelated with the government. So I often feel that everything stems from the government policy and then you get a response or a reaction or a building uh, upon coming from those professional organisations. Business also has policies, but they don't tend to be related to public health. So again, they tend to be a response. So if you have something such as um, banning the advertisement of HFSS products, then particularly the large multinationals or the the large trade bodies, will then say, well, what policies should we have in place to encourage uh, our own company or if it's a trade body, our own members to engage with the government policy in a positive way? I can think of one example um, on fibre, for example, because the Food and Drink Federation has implemented this uh, this policy to try and encourage its members to include more fibre in manufactured products. And that's as a response to the 2015 Sacken report, which said we all should be eating 30 grams of fibre a day, which is very far from where we are at the moment. So yes, there are kind of variety of policies, but I do feel that the main one is still the government policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you for explaining. To set the scene, can you share your insights into the current landscape of health policy development in the UK? Yes, I I would say one word springs to mind, which is slow. You know, if you one good example is um, adding folic acid to white flour. It was actually about 30 years ago that the Medical Research Council said that this was a good idea because so many women were having pregnancies uh, where the fetus was affected by neural tube disorder. And, you know, that's that's a really major issue if you have a child who's born disabled with spina bifida, that is a lifelong condition with no cure and it just requires to be managed. Or in many cases, women have opted for termination of those pregnancies. So to me, that was absolutely crying out for some policy reaction. But here we are 30 years later and nothing has happened whatsoever. And we've even got, um, I would say, pretty much a consensus. So policy development 
usually starts with identification of a need or an issue, whether it is, um, for example, we're talking a lot about malnutrition and and um, and food insecurity at the moment, but in the past it's been obesity, so there could be some need or an issue. And then uh, usually there will be um, civil servants will be asked to go and cast about and consult and find some sort of policy solution. So there might be um, advisory committees such as SACAN and those in the health service who are advising on what those uh, policy options are. Then the civil servants will create policy papers, for example, white papers, where um, the politicians will then have an input because it isn't just what is evidence-based, it's also where there's a political will, particularly when it might result in some sort of restriction of freedom. So if you're saying these foods will be banned or these foods will be taxed, when we had, for example, the uh, the soft drinks um, levy, the, the, sugar, the sugar tax. Um, so the politicians have to make the ultimate decision, and that's right because there always is uh, either a financial implication or a legal implication or an implication to do with our freedoms to behave in the way that we we want to. Um, and then once that's actually happened, there then might need to be some legislation put in place and that, that, that then goes to Parliament. And if it's something that doesn't require legislation, it will nevertheless still have to be consulted on by those affected. So, for example, with the, um, the restriction of advertising for HFSS foods, that's the high fat sugar salt foods, the, the food companies would have to be consulted, also advertising companies because they're going to be affected. TV, um, media companies would be affected by this as well. There's usually a 12-week consultation period. Then the civil servants will make the final adjustments to the policy or law and then it will have to get implemented. And then it will have to get assessed because even when you've um, implemented a policy, you have to check whether or not it's working and do regular evaluations. So policy is, um, even, even policy that is has got no um, disagreement about it, no controversy, can often take years and years and years to actually happen. And those where there is an element of controversy sometimes drag on so long that it seems like they're never going to happen at all. Mm. You think that's what happened with the case of the folic acid? Do you think there's just no clear agreement? Or why do you think it's taken so long to reach a, a final step with that case? I think I think it's taken so long because the political will has been consistently derailed by things happening in the last few years, particularly the last decade. So it's not been front of mind. Um, I suppose... If you if you read the newspapers, every single article seems to demand that the government does something, whether it's care of elderly, you know, health service, schools, foreign affairs, defence cuts, every single um, pressure group or, you know, group of, of interested stakeholders seems to ultimately need the government to pay attention to them and to do something. And the government only has a finite amount of attention and resources. The civil servants, I know this because of working with Food Standards Scotland, are really flat out. And Brexit, um, I think, caused a huge amount of work for civil servants trying to um, unpack uh, all the implications for the current um, regulatory system. 
So I just feel it's one of those things that the pressure groups involved are not loud enough and it's just got put on the back burner, which I think is an absolute tragedy because we've got to the point where there isn't anything controversial about it anymore. Most people are in agreement. It's only going to go in white flour. So if you've got a severe objection to your food being fortified, you can always go and buy wholemeal bread or make your bread yourself at home um, with, with wholemeal bread and you will not have anything for in your in your bread. So it's not controversial, but I think there's just a lack of political capacity to get it done. Mm, it is a shame, isn't it? Is there someone that holds all the decision-making power when it comes to shaping the country's health policies or does everyone need to have a say in this in the steps you just explained? Does everyone need to approve or could there be one body or one person that could actually just say, let's approve this? The ultimate person to uh, approve it is the Secretary of State for Health and that's where the buck stops. But the process, because they're only one individual and they can't be everywhere and they can't know everything, they're very reliant on things being filtered. And obviously the civil service is a massive organisation for filtering information. So they, they will take in information about the need for policy and then they will obviously look for solutions and then they will then filter those solutions. So the secretaries of state, um, whoever they are, and they've changed so frequently, it's hard to keep up with them, will be offered options uh, for issues that need to be tackled. And they will also be offered uh, probably even one or two solutions by the time the civil servants have filtered it all. Um, so the civil service has a huge amount of power in deciding what goes before the Secretary of State. There might be pressure groups or people who want to make representations to the Secretary of State or their ministers. And again, that gets filtered through the civil service. So there will be recommendations made about which people to meet and who gets an appointment and who doesn't. So I think that uh, the ultimate person to decide is often the person that, that it's hardest to communicate with. And you really have to get, you know, engage fully with the civil service in order to move anything forward. Well, I mean, I had no idea that, you know, the complexities behind policy. So that's really eye-opening for me. So I'm sure many of our listeners will be really interested to hear about the behind the scenes um, when it comes to policy. So thank you for sharing. Does health policy creation slash review work typically include dietitians and nutritionists? I would say not unless they're in the civil service or in one of the official advisory committees. So, for example, in the UK, we've got SACN, um, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition, and that has very good representation from nutritionists. And I think a few dietitians, one or two dietitians are in there, but they're usually mainly um, academics with, I think they have one lay person and one person who will have some experience of working with industry. Um, then there will be the, the British Dietetic Association who will have an impact the Nutrition Society is trying to engage a lot more. Historically, that has kept within the scientific realm, but in the last few years has seen the Nutrition Society 
um, be a lot more proactive with engaging with government and policy. And they've actually just recently launched last year um, an all-party parliamentary group, an APPG, on nutrition science, which had its first term last year. And I think that's going to be a, a fantastic way of getting evidence-based nutrition in front of politicians. We also know that the British Nutrition Foundation, which of course is, is part funded by industry, but has a lot of independence as well in terms of its um, understanding of the evidence base and the, uh, the consultations that it does, that is um, quite instrumental as well. Then there are some nutritionists who will work for government as well in the civil service. So there are some. I feel as a an individual nutritionist myself, it, a nutritionist and a dietitian, that it's often hard to get some information fed in into the system unless you're part of one of those big organisations. So as you know, I've been talking a lot recently about the Nutrition and Health Claims Regulation and I feel there is a need for it to be looked at again in terms of the restriction on dietitians and nutritionists communicating health claims in commercial communications. And I know it's just one tiny regulation that only affects a small number of people. Um, I think it's a regulation that's... Um, uh, unnecessarily uh, strict and uh, and prevents um, dietitians and nutritionists doing their jobs properly when they work with industry. But it's incredibly hard to bring that to anyone's attention. You know, you really do need to kind of tag on, you need to tag on to a bigger group or organisation that does have the government's ear. And if you're not in that system, then it is almost impossible to get your policy ideas um, listened to by anybody in power. And why? Why do you think that's the case? I think the systems are just too large and too complex and there are various ways of working within them so that it excludes individuals and small groups who nevertheless might have something important to say, but it's just very hard to be heard. And I think it's just always been that way. So the only way to be heard is to tag on to a bigger organisation such as the BDA or even hopefully the Nutrition Society, APPG, and try and feed it in that way or, you know, make use of political contacts, you know, kind of work those contacts um, right to your MP, but then you, you, you need to keep doing it. So it can sometimes be very difficult to get heard. Or even if somebody had a great idea for trying to reduce the risk of obesity. You know, I mean, I mean there must be loads of ideas out there in, in day-to-day life uh, for healthcare professionals, but getting those ideas actually fed into the government system is extremely difficult. Mm. Well, it's good to know that there's some exciting changes being made within government, such as the nutrition uh, group that you mentioned. But I suppose it, it seems as though you really do need a strong will, resilience and determination if you're passionate about these topics in order to have any change at all. And obviously, you're, you're the perfect person for that because you you have all of those things. So, yes, yeah, I mean, you, you presented a webinar on the topic that you just mentioned around, um, you know, dietitians, nutritionists, and what we can say and can't say from a claims perspective. And it was really interesting to hear your insights. So, you know, for anyone listening, I hope that they do kind of follow up and check out your LinkedIn and um, find out more about that research you're doing, because it's really interesting. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'd like more people to get knowledgeable about that. 100%. 
In your opinion, what unique perspectives do dietitians and nutritionists bring to the table when it comes to formulating evidence-based policies for healthy eating habits? Dietitians and nutritionists definitely have a unique aspect, which is their practical experience, which they build uh, upon their qualifications to talk about nutrition and diet in the first place. And I think that's absolutely essential because policies have to be practical so that people can implement them. There's no point having some idealistic view that everyone's going to eat um, a plant-based diet that's sugar-free with no ultra-processed foods and we're all going to cook beans and pulses at home. It just isn't going to happen. And that's something that I've talked quite a lot about the last few years. In fact, I presented a paper at the Nutrition Society summer meeting about three years ago and it got published in Proceedings of the Nutrition Society. And what that was saying is, that policy is only going to work in practice if if we we bring about a, a good, better, best approach where we we know where the ideal is, you know, perhaps based on evidence or studies, we know where we're trying to get people to, but the steps to get there are equally important. And just simply banging people over the head about, oh, you're eating too much sugar, salt and fat and you're eating too many processed foods and you're not eating enough fruit and veg. It just creates this idea that people are are failing somehow in their diet. And then I think that people just switch off. And what we really need is the practical application that comes from working as a, a dietitian or a nutritionist to say, well, where where are the patients or the public now and that's why we do the diet history at the start of our of our consultations but where are they now in public health terms and we have the national diet and nutrition survey for that and then where do we want them to be and then what are the practical steps to get them there which might even need some sort of segmentation so the advice that you might give um, a care home for looking after the elderly people in there would be different from the schools um, advising uh, what the, the children should be having for snacks and school meals. And it might be different from what adolescents and young people are advised to do um, when they're taking, starting to take responsibility for their own diets. So I think the mistakes that we've made and why we've seen very little progress in, in the nation's diets over the last 20 to 30 years is because we're always presenting the perfect diet and we're not accepting where people are right now and what skills and motivation they have to get to the perfect diet and what those practical steps are. And I do think that dietitians and nutritionists could play a much bigger role in that and, and help the government and other policymakers get to that point of success. Mm, okay, that's really interesting. And that patient-centered approach that you talk about is is also, you know, very becoming very popular. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why personalization is becoming such a um, forward way of thinking and a trend amongst the health and nutrition landscape, because it probably motivates people much more to be treated as an individual than someone grouped into uh, other people that or re- relating to other people that maybe doesn't make sense to them. And in the end, that's demotivating because, as you say, we can never really achieve a perfect diet. So, yeah, that's 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 great to hear that from you. 
Yeah, although saying that, I do have some doubts around the, the commercialization of personalized diets because I know that we're not quite there yet for fully personalized diets where you can say, Ola, let's look at your, you know, genetics um and measure your blood sugar and oh this is the this is the diet for you. I don't think we're there yet from a science no. and evidence point of view, but where we are is looking at clustering of diets, um, clustering of 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 dietary attributes. So, you know, it could be, you know, the fiber, the fruit and veg and you know, looking at uh, sources of saturated fat, maybe discretionary foods, maybe adding in the the plant compounds such as polyphenols and um and the uh, the getting the fat balanced right. For example, more omega threes and less um omega sixes. So we do have evidence around clustering of mm. um characteristics of diets, but I don't think we're at the point where I could do a, a genetic test on somebody and say, here's the ideal diet for you. Yeah. Okay, that's good to clarify. So what form could participating in policy development take for nutrition experts? The main one is is jobs in the civil service. Um, And uh, at the moment, and for that, actually for the last um, decade or so, the civil service has been very good about appointing people to nutrition roles who are either registered dietitians or registered nutritionists. And I think that's a really good thing because, as you know, at the moment, the title of nutritionist is not protected, which means that somebody could do a, a two week, um, you know, online course and then call themselves a nutritionist. And obviously they're not in the right place to be advising on public policy or even individuals diets. So the civil service has been very good about that. I'm not sure at the moment um, how many jobs are available and whether these have been cut. But certainly the civil service is a really good place to start. Um, In Food Standards Scotland, for example, we had highly qualified nutritionists who were uh, very busy um, contributing to public policy in Scotland. Cool. Sounds like there's some great opportunities available there. That's that's exciting. Are there specific public health challenges such as obesity, diabetes or malnutrition where the influence of dietitians and nutrition experts in policy can make a significant difference? Yes, I, th- I mean, I, I definitely think that obesity is is the root of a lot of the problems that we're having just now in terms of health. So um, with more than 60% of, of adults um, overweight in some places uh, and, and having a social class element as well, where people from lower socioeconomic groups have a higher burden of obesity and also the related conditions um, such as cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, if we could do something about obesity, it would have a knock-on effect across many other aspects of the health service. And um, dietitians are uh, very well placed to advise about that, having you know, cutting-edge experience in dealing with, with individual patients and groups of patients. Um, I think that what is often lacking is in the last, I would say, probably 30 years, there has been uh, an aversion to dealing with um, obesity policy in terms of the NHS and capacity, and it's shifted always onto industry. Now, of course, industry definitely has a role in preventing and reducing obesity because one side of the equation is what we eat and most of what we get comes from the food industry. But another side of it is uh, is the exercise that we do and also the choices that we make. 
And um, there is a relationship between industry and the customer that they have to give the customer what they want. And if the customer is wanting discretionary foods, high fat foods, large portions of foods, um, then they will they will buy those. And whether you know a, a British company makes it available or whether you buy it on the internet from abroad, the customer can always get those foods. So even if you crack down absolutely on all British companies, which is within the power of the government, I don't think you would still fix obesity because then there are still people who are are, are overweight um, uh, who are making different choices. And there are also people who are not exercising as well. So you do need to have a holistic approach to it. And I think that's where the dietitians and nutritionists come in, that working with um, exercise colleagues as well to give holistic advice to people and also to see how should the health service manage existing obesity levels. Prevention is only one part of it. If you've already got 60% of adults overweight or obese, prevention is not going to do anything for those people. That's going to help tackle future obesity, but not current obesity. So yes, I do think there's a role, but I do think it needs to be widened beyond simply banging on about reformulation and advertising, because those two things alone are not going to fix obesity. Mm, okay. So in your view then, what are the public health priorities that you think nutrition professionals should fo- be focusing on when advocating for policy change at present? What I would like to see is a more holistic diet approach and really harnessing the food-based dietary guidelines. We've spent a lot of time in the past arguing about what level of sugar people should have and salt um, and fibre And we might have those numbers now. And as dietitians and nutritionists, we know what those numbers are. We know where to find them. But the public has got no understanding of this whatsoever. I've been doing some work recently with a food company looking at understanding of fibre. And while uh, we did some survey work with consumers, and while most people can identify that something like, you know, wholemeal bread is a source of fibre or fruit and vegetables, they're not really sure how much fibre they should be eating. They don't know um, other foods, for example, nuts and seeds that, that have uh, also have fibre in them. And um, they're really not quite sure how to track their fibre intake. If you pick up most food products, they haven't got fibre written on the label. So how people are supposed to know how to get to 30 grams, I just don't know. So um, I think if we take a more holistic approach, instead of sort of always talking about sugar, fat and salts and calories, which to me are the negative nutrients. You're always telling people, stop eating this, eat less of that, eat less of this. And at the same time, things like fiber and vitamins and minerals and omega-3 fatty acids are completely ignored. Whereas if we talked more about foods and really tackle the excessive consumption of discretionary foods, um, Food Standards Scotland, again, has, has been trying to do something about this. They've done an analysis of... Um, I think it was a Scottish health survey database. It was their Intake 24 data, and it's on the Food Standards Scotland website, where they've calculated the percentage of um, sugar and calories that have come from these discretionary foods, the biscuits, cakes, crisps, sugary drinks. 
And it really is quite excessive. So if you could just sort of look on a food-based holistic level and encourage people to eat less of certain foods and eat more of others, you're then shifting people towards a more nutritious diet and not always banging on about fat, sugar and salt and um, throwing numbers at them, um, 30 grams of fiber, 5% energy from sugar, that people just simply don't understand. Mm. Yeah, that's a really key point there around understanding what health means for the consumer, because what we know as nutrition professionals and dietitians and scientists is not the terminology that consumers use. So I completely agree with you that we need to think about you know, the, the consumer's perspective on this, because that's the only way we're really going to resonate and get through to consumers. So that's a really yeah, good point. Yeah, definitely. And also to say positive things to them, because if you're asking people to eat more of certain high fibre foods, the wholemeal bread, the seeds and the nuts and the fruit and the vegetables and showing them easy ways to do that, you're you're giving permission to eat more of things. Uh, consumers mm. are always being told, eat less, avoid. And these are very negative things. And I do feel that it makes them switch off after a while. Mm, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okay, so how important is collaboration when trying to implement successful policy? What do you think? Well, collaboration is is absolutely essential, but there's collaboration on different levels. Um, for example, there's collaboration uh, between research and policy implementation, policy development and implementation, because the, the research is, is advancing all the time. And while the main output of that is scientific papers, I think that um, research funding is changing slightly to ensure that communication is now a lot wider, involves different stakeholders. So, you know, long gone are the days where you would get money for a study and then you just publish a couple of papers in an academic journal. You're now expected to give talks and podcasts and engage with people on a wider level. And I think that's really good because advancing science and nutrition science can aid policy development so that we're really trying to bring in the things that are effective and uh, and will deliver health improvements. So that's the kind of first area of collaboration between the nutrition scientists and the policymakers. Um, and the nutrition society is absolutely cutting edge in this. Um, and obviously the British Dietetic Association have got um, their journal as well and are engaging with government too. A second level of collaboration, which is actually a bit newer um, nowadays, is this idea of co-creation. So in the past, we would, as experts, do things to our target population. We would say, oh, what's best for children or elderly people or people with certain health conditions? And then we would come along and give them advice or have some sort of intervention. And now that that scene is out of date. And what we're really looking to do now is co-create the intervention with the target population. So that a lot of work's being done around food insecurity and uh, and hard to reach populations where um, health educators and policymakers are working with those groups to try and find out what they want to improve their health and well-being within their communities. And I think that is a really important way to, to, to see interventions being more effective if you're actually involving the people with the lived experience of, of those lifestyles. Mm. 
And what about the role of dietitians and nutrition professionals engaging with industry, either directly employed by companies or working as consultants? I think that's a really important question, Corinne, because we often think about dietitians and nutritionists either, you know, working for the NHS or working in consulting rooms or or for policymakers. But in fact, a lot of dietitians and nutritionists either work directly for companies as staff members or um, they work, um, as I do, on a consultancy basis. And I think it's absolutely vital because most of the food um, that we we buy on a day-to-day basis has has come from the food industry in some way, whether it's farmers growing the food and the trade bodies promoting certain things like potatoes or or meat or fruit and veg, right down to the manufacturing companies that will make many of the popular food and drink products that we that we buy, plus the retailers who are the the ones that create the shopping experience um, and the marketing and the promotion that encourages uh, encourages us to buy certain things. So the food industry is actually a a very wide group of organisations from farm to fork. And and then there's out of home as well, of course. Um, And if dietitians and nutritionists are not engaging with that huge industry, then we're just simply not serious about policy development. Because if we're trying to encourage people to eat certain things, whether it's five a day, fruit and veg, or to eat more oily fish or or more fibre. We simply have to work with industry. And dietitians and nutritionists can do that in a variety of ways. So they can actually work with product development and product creation. They can work with responsible food promotion and manufacture. And then when you're looking at foods that we we want to eat less of, for example, the discretionary foods, you can work with companies on reformulation, portion control and and packaging in order to help the consumer um, limit and manage their consumption of these high fat, high calorie foods. So I think that um, it's absolutely essential that we engage. And if we don't, and if we refuse to engage, then we're just simply going to be looking at uh, the failure of many of the policies that we would like to see implemented. I couldn't agree more. I too, I'm a big advocate of dietitians and nutrition professionals working in industry. And I think it's really important that we raise our profile um, so that there's more opportunities made available for dietitians and nutritionists because we have such a diverse skill set that can really guide and influence companies in a positive way. So, yeah, couldn't agree with more with what you just said there. Looking ahead then, what do you see as the future of public health policy and how can dietitians and nutrition professionals play a proactive role in shaping these policies to meet evolving health needs? What I would like to see in the future is um, this more holistic approach and also on on an approach that deals with what's effective. So uh, we can't do everything and we can't make everybody have the perfect diet So we should be um, and we have limited resources as well, either in terms of time or or money for interventions uh, from from the government and taxation perspective. So I think that we ought to be targeting those groups who are most in need of a health shift from ill health towards health. And that's where the resources and the time and attention should be uh, focused And in my view, although other people might disagree, I would say it's people from 
uh, lower socioeconomic groups who um, really do suffer the largest burden of ill health and will have some of the worst diets and the most restrictive diets around uh, with large proportions of um, uh, of high fat, high sugar, high calorie foods and not very much of the very valuable vitamins, minerals, fibre and, and omega-3 fatty acids that could improve their health. So I think we, we should kind of direct our firepower there. We should also tackle um, diets in teenagers and young people. Um, I think too much attention has been paid to primary school children. And if you look at the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, their diets aren't too bad at all. But the, the place where the diets really start to go wrong is in the teenage years and um, particularly with a lack of, uh, of vitamins and minerals and, uh, and omega-3 fat, fatty acids. So I think, again, that is the, the group that requires the biggest input and it needs to be holistic and it needs to engage uh, with those particular young people from their own perspective and um, not, not kind of a top-down approach. So I think that's the kind of the two things that I would like to see targeting um, in terms of need and targeting the point uh, in, our, in our life cycle where the diets really start to go off the rails and that will only continue into young adulthood and later in life. So if we could fix those two things, I think we would be making a significant um, improvement to people's health. Thank you, Carrie. That's a really interesting perspective to close the episode on. And I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will be will feel really kind of motivated and ready to go in terms of uh, looking forward to policy and, and how they can play a proactive role. So thank you for, for sharing your, your insight. That's okay. So a huge thank you to Carrie for coming onto the podcast today. It was great to discuss and debate this area with you. Yeah, it was great to be on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I hope it's um, it's something that people will enjoy listening to. Thank you, Carrie. And a huge thank you, to, as always, to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out soon. But in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time.